Morning. This morning's reading is from Psalm 48, verses 1 through 14. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as that of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. This is the word of the Lord. When we look at this psalm in sort of three movements or three verses, if you will. I say verses. If it were a song that we were singing, there'd be three verses. It's ten, roughly 10 verses, 14 verses in our translations. But three movements. The first one. The city of the great king. That's the first three verses. The psalmist takes us and he's picturing the city of Zion. Here's what you need to know. We don't have time to unpack this part of this, but here's what you need to hear when you read Zion. In the fullness of time through as scripture unfolds, this Old Testament place that is beloved by the people of God, it's beloved so because God dwells there. In the fullness of time, the Old Testament place becomes the New Testament people. We are the place where God dwells, the church. So when you read Zion in this psalm, think us, the people of God. Let me just read these first three verses again. We hear the city of the great king. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. This psalm, this beginning, is teaching us to see Zion with eyes of faith. Now, why do I say that? Here's where we have to pause and be honest Bible readers. I don't know how many, I've never been there, but I don't know if anyone has actually ever been to Mount Zion and stood in Jerusalem, in the Middle East, the place they're physically talking. If you have, here's what you know. This isn't actually literally true. These descriptions, if, we, if we're honest Bible readers, this is not a geographer's description of Mount Zion. He says it is beautiful in elevation. It's about 2,500 feet. It doesn't make the top 10 list of Israel's largest mountains. It's not really that big of a mountain. He says it is the joy of all the earth. Now, you don't need to know much Bible history or church history to know that the people of God are not always acknowledged as the joy of all the earth. And here's the, perhaps the most puzzling one. He says it's in the far north. But Mount Zion and Jerusalem are basically right in the middle of Israel. 
It's not the far north. What is he talking about here? Now, if this were a human poet, we might think, you just don't know what you're talking about. But this is inspired divine poetry. And this is inviting us to see with eyes of faith, not merely eyes of sight. It's as though God is saying, when you look at Zion, when you look at the people of God, if you don't see this, look again. You're not seeing what's really there. Zion is beautiful in elevation, not because it is physically elevated, but because it is spiritually exalted. This is where God has chosen to make his home. Out of all the earth, this mountain can claim this status. God dwells there. And in light of that, this is the center of the earth. This is the joy. This is the heart, the beating center of all the world because the creator of all things dwells here. That's why it's the joy of all the earth. And why the far north? Well, in ancient mythologies in this area, the far north was where the gods dwelt. And the psalmist says, no. You've heard that. It's a myth. It's not true. You want to know where the real place where heaven touches earth? doesn't matter whether it's north, central, or south. It's where the Lord of hosts dwells. And this is that place. This is the city of the great king. The center of the earth. It's kind of like, you think of this in our modern city. You say if someone's into music, especially folk music or country music, you need to be in Nashville. That's where it's happening. That's the city where it's taking place. You think of our modern mythologies. Where's power reside? D.C., Moscow, Silicon Valley. All of those, the psalm says, no, you're not seeing rightly. If you want to be where joy is happening, you need to be on Zion. If you want to know where power really dwells, real power, it's the city of God. And remember, this is us. This is what it means to be the people of God. Now, this is not all these cherished pictures. They're not ours yet by sight, but they are ours by faith. And this side of the return of Christ, the closest we come to tasting this inheritance is what we're doing right now. Sunday morning, the gathered people of God. When God brings us together and we sing, now unto the king, and we lift our voices and worship him together, that's the nearest taste of this day when Zion will be the center of the earth. That's the closest we come this side of heaven. What a tremendous privilege. So let me simply ask, what do you see when you see the gathered church Sunday by Sunday? A social occasion? A time to see friends? A moment of positivity in a world of negativity? It is all that, but it is so much more. When we gather on Sundays as the people of God, the city of the great king, we are participating in a dress rehearsal for the future of the universe. This is the place where God touches down, where God dwells on earth, present in the praises of his people. This is the city of the great king. We taste it week by week, and we long for the day when we don't have to leave. But now, that first verse or stanza of the song celebrates the city of the great king, but you might have a question. Perhaps if it's been a good week, you're thinking, this is great. I am enjoying this. I'm ready to sign up. Let's just do this forever. 
But you might gather and have a what about thought in your mind. What about the fact that the world is not always a joyous place? What about the fact that I gather and worship with tears in my eyes? I praise with a broken heart. Is this just a naive, shallow proclamation of what it means to be the people of God? If you've got that thought or that, that moment, or if you've ever gathered on a Sunday with that heavy heart, that you're joyful and yet brokenhearted, this psalm is not simplistic. Look at how verse three ends. It's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? After this glorious celebration, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Wait, I thought we were talking about joy. Let's talk about feasting, not fortresses. Why a fortress? And that takes us to the second stanza of our psalm, the security of this city. We are the city of the great king, but this city is besieged. Verse four has the only logical connector, the only, this is the reason why in the whole psalm. For behold, why is God made known as a fortress in his city? For behold, the kings assembled. They have gathered, the psalmist wants to say, all that I'm about to tell you, I can celebrate the security of this city because I saw it. The kings gathered and assembled. And then he begins to describe what appears to be a battle. The kings assembled, that's verse four. Now we would expect that we now move to the description of the battle and instead what do we have? Not a battle, but a rout. Verse five entirely skips the battle and moves to the kings saw it. What? We'll come to that. What did they see? They saw it. They were astounded. They were panicked. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. It's the description of a complete and utter rout. Verse four sets you up kind of if you're a fan of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. It's like Helm's Deep or the Battle of Gondor. Massive evil armies gathering outside a besieged city, but verse five just jumps to their complete and utter defeat. Just like the first part, the psalmist is calling us to see with eyes of faith again here. He's calling us to see something more. This is why he can abandon all the description of the battle, more than a military historian would see. Now let me make clear as I unpack this, I'm not saying this didn't happen. Our enemies are real, both in Old Testament, New Testament times, and if our deliverance is not real, then we are above all people to be pitied. But the psalmist is seeing more than a camera pointed at this battle. It's as though God is saying, you don't need to know troop strengths and divisions and movements. Here's what you need to know, the essential nature. This city is secure. This city will not be shaken. And the psalmist demonstrates that with a remarkably dense and loaded section of scripture. So we read it, he describes it, but what we might miss is all the allusions that this psalmist is making. For instance, when he says the kings assembled, Psalm two has already told us that the history of the human race can be described as kings rebelling against the Lord and against his maker. This is an echo of that archetypal struggle. And then he goes on in verses five and six, and he is quoting from one of the most foundational passages of the Old Testament, Exodus 15. Let me read you from Exodus 15, and we've got words, I believe, in bold here showing you words that are parallel and repeated intentionally by the psalmist. In Exodus 15, as Moses teaches the people to sing after the great deliverance at the Red Sea, this is what they say. The peoples have heard. They tremble. 
pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. The psalmist is intentionally echoing that song from the past. He is intentionally echoing Psalm 2 and the gathered kings. And then there's that odd detail. You probably noticed it when we were reading it. The ships of Tarshish. Where did they come from? Jerusalem is actually about 33 miles, according to Google Maps, from the coast. And there is no Old Testament record of a naval assault on Jerusalem. But Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 23 describe the ships of Tarshish as symbols of human technological achievement. They were apparently the most advanced ships of the day. And the psalmist heaps them all together. And then this one last small but loaded detail. By the east wind, you shattered those ships. The east wind is the wind that God sends to bring the locusts in Exodus 10. And the east wind is what piles up the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and then brings it crashing down on the armies of Pharaoh. It's as though in every single verse, the psalmist has intentionally pulled pieces from the past, the present, and the future and assembled them all in one big mosaic picture and said, this is what it's like. Why is he doing that? He's saying this is the pattern of life for the people of God. As it was then, so it is now, so it shall be. We are the city of the great king constantly besieged, but because we are the city of the great king, we are eternally secure. That's what he's trying to get us to see here. The security of this city isn't something that happens one time, and that's it. Do you remember that time when the ships gathered? Boy, I'm glad God sent the east wind. I wonder what he's going to do next time. The psalmist wants you to see this is like that, and it's like that. It'll always be the same, and we will always be secure. There is a sense in which every opposition to the true people of God is the same throughout time and history. And we will forever be secure. This is our identity. Are you surprised when as the people of God we're opposed? I often am, but we shouldn't be. This is what it means to be the city of the great king. Constantly besieged, eternally secure. They go hand in hand together. Now here's where, this is, this is helpful for us to take this to heart. And it's also helpful to just look back over the history of how God has kept his people so that we realize it's not something we're doing wrong that leads to opposition. If you look back over history, here's an irony. The church has been opposed from being, for being lawless atheists and opposed for being legalistic moralists. We have been told that we are too violent and that we are too pacifist, that we are too committed to giving to the church and that we are too otherworldly. 
Why can we be opposed from all sides? Because that's what it means to be the people of God. It's actually G.K. Chesterton, the British writer who observed this. When he wasn't a Christian, he said he was eager for, a, for ammunition to oppose Christianity. And he began reading the atheist of his day eagerly. And yet he would notice that even in the span of one book, Christianity would be accused of being one thing and then of being its opposite. And he saw this over and over again. This is what he gradually concluded. He said, it looked not as if Christianity was bad enough to include any vices, but rather as if any stick was good enough to beat Christianity with. Now we laugh and it's funny, but are we prepared to be opposed on all sides? Make clear, there are ways that we can sin and draw opposition for our failures and our folly. That's not what we're talking about here. When we violate the Lord's commands to, to be gentle, calm, not easily aroused, not quick to speak, but slow to speak and quick to listen. When we break those commands, sometimes we're experiencing the rough consequences of being foolish. But leave that aside. Part of being the people of God is to be continually opposed. And this psalm, its great gift is to protect us from thinking if we just changed on this point, the opposition would go away. It won't. And if we think it is, we'll be continually unsecure. But what does it mean to be the people of God? It means to live in the city of the great king, surrounded by foes. Names change, circumstances change, the direction of the opposition changes, but they're always there. And yet we are always secure. This is our corporate identity. And let me say this too. This filters all the way down to how you think about tomorrow morning. This is one of those cleanse your imagination, give you the 50,000 foot view, the big picture of the people of God, but it lands on tomorrow morning. As one of my favorite writers, David Pallison, who's now gone home to be with the Lord, would say, every day you wake up and you're part of the great war and you wake up to a skirmish in that war. But the weapons we fight with and the temptations we experience are not physical temptations, they are the kinds of things that other books of scripture like James or the teaching of Jesus describes. When you, when you wake up on Monday morning and you choose forgiveness instead of bitterness, a gentle word instead of a harsh word, purity instead of lust, you are joining in the great war. This psalm is meant to give you the picture that motivates you to live as a citizen of the kingdom, an inhabitant of this city and not one of those outside raging. This is our identity. May we claim it and own it as our own. Now one more thing that in a gathering, whenever we're in a, a gathering this size, one more thing that I have to say before we conclude this psalm and step away to our last point. Psalm 48 doesn't tell us everything. And here's the vital question that I have to ask that Psalm 48 doesn't. It doesn't tell us whether how to become inside the city instead of outside the city. It doesn't answer the question, whose side are you on? And that's too important a question to skip over. But it's not as though the Psalms don't teach us that, the answer to that question. Psalm 2, which I've already mentioned, the king's assembling, Psalm 2 tells us how you know whose side you're on. Here's how the beginning of Psalm 2 describes all of our conditions. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is a description of the natural human heart. I will not be bound by God. I will rebel when push comes to shove. God, I'll do it my way. Now, because of gathering this size, I don't know where you're at. I don't know whether your rebellion is subtle or open. I can tell you, as someone growing up in a Christian household, my rebellion was really subtle. From the outside, you wouldn't have known I was a rebel. But I have a distinct memory, probably seven or eight years old, of a repeated occurrence, I think. You know how memories go. I think it happened regularly, at least once, seared in my mind. Riding in my dad's pickup truck, my dad would push at that point a cassette tape into the tape player, listening to R.C. Sproul teach about the holiness and sovereignty of God. And in my seven, eight, nine-year-old self, I thought, I don't want to hear it. And I would fold my arms and put my head down and sigh sarcastically and turn away from the tape. The Lord won't let me forget that moment. That was subtle rebellion, but it was rebellion nonetheless. Are you here this morning in rebellion against the King of Kings? You must do what the end of Psalm 2 says. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. To kiss the son is a picture of swearing allegiance to King Jesus. It is bowing your knee and saying, you are Lord and I am not. I submit to you. If you are here this morning and you have not submitted to King Jesus, then in the language of Psalm 48, you're outside the city. But hear the good news of the gospel this morning. The king invites rebels, lay down your arms and come in. Come home. Take refuge in this city. Take refuge in the sun. Because, make no mistake, as Psalm 48 tells us, opposition to this king will not succeed. Kings and emperors, wise men, and fools throughout human history have proclaimed the imminent death of Christianity and the end of the church and they lie moldering in their graves and Jesus as Lord advances around the globe. Opposition will not win, so this morning, bend your knee, receive the king and take refuge in him. Then you will find you're inside the city and you are eternally secure. The city of the great king, the security of that city and then the last movement, the faithful response, beginning in verse nine. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the end of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. What is our faithful response? We rejoice. We rejoice because of what the Lord has done, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we believe. We can respond with rejoicing. The judgments it speaks of there in verse 11, that's the Lord's decrees, what must be. Jesus shall have a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. His name shall be glorified. The Lord has said it, it shall be, so we rejoice. Now, make no mistake, this is not the kind of rejoicing 
that tells you just forget your problems, don't think about them. You can't read the Psalms and conclude that's the way we respond to hardships. This is the kind of rejoicing that comes not by forgetting, but by remembering. Not by forgetting that life is hard. We are besieged. There is opposition and suffering and pain. But the kind of joy that comes by remembering our future. We will be secure. The Lord's decrees have been pronounced and nothing can alter them. So we rejoice as the people of God. And then we recount. There's a play on words that unfortunately is is hard to bring out. And most English translations don't bring it out. Beginning in verse 12, we have this picture. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers. So picture, this is a psalm in which the city has been besieged. And at the conclusion, the psalmist says, walk with me. Walk around the perimeter. Count the towers. The enemy was there and there. The armies were there. Count the towers. Are any of them missing? They're still there. The towers have not been knocked down. The walls are still whole. And here's the play on words. Go, consider well her ramparts. Go through the citadels that you may tell the next generation. Tell is actually the same word as number. The best English parallel we could get is this. You count the towers that you might recount to the next generation. You number, you, you look and count the ways the enemy assaulted and the Lord protected so that you can recount to the next generation. Look, I was there. I saw the enemies gathered. It looked like the city would fall and it still stands. The city is still here. Son, daughter, look. Look at the ramparts. They have not been broken. This is why the church is multi-generational. So that we can gather and stand and say, Right there is where the enemy assaulted us and it looked like he would win and the wall is still there. I thought the church would be destroyed. I thought our marriage would not survive. I thought my faith would fail, that anxieties would overwhelm me and I would not recover. I thought the enemy would win. Look, the city still stands. The walls still remain. The Lord has been faithful. This is how we respond. We are the city of the great king. We are constantly besieged and we are eternally secure. So within these walls, we can rejoice. Within these walls, we can count the towers so that we can recount to the next generation. This is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Now here's the question the psalm ends on. How long will this take place? How long will we be constantly besieged? You probably have, you have the ESV, you probably have a footnote there on he will guide us forever. And the footnote says something like this. Other manuscripts say unto death. There's a variation between different translations of this in the Hebrew or the Greek. One reads, God will guide us forever and ever, and one reads, God will guide us unto or beyond death. But when you put them side by side in light of the fullness of Scripture, we don't have to choose between them, do we? How long will the Lord guide us? Until the moment when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, he will still be our God and guide us. How long will we be secure? 
Until the dead in Christ hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out from the tombs and live, he will still guide us. How long will we be the city of our God? Until the moment when we stand on the earth and with our eyes see the new city, the holy city descending from the heavens. And God himself will dwell with us forever. That city will not be besieged. That city's gates are eternally open. In that city, there is no more weeping. There is only rejoicing. And in that moment, all that we have now by faith as Zion, the people of God, will be our full possession by sight. This is what it means to be the people of God. May we rejoice in the security that our God has given us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what a privilege to be your people who dwell in your city, eternally secure, though enemies may be without. Lord, root this deep in our hearts. Open our eyes that we might see and rejoice in our security and recount your faithfulness that you might be glorified, King Jesus, in the praises of your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen.